Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Ooh, welcome back, sports fans, to another episode of the Charity Stripe Podcast, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one sports podcast network in Los Angeles. For those listening at home, on the road, in the air, or in the water, do you believe? We have a great show for you guys today. Podcasting legend Roger Bennett joins the boys. So buckle up, tuck it into your waistband, because here we go. Three, two, one. We're back. And now, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. We are live on the Charity Stripe Podcast with your hosts, Alex, Josh, and Nick. We're back, baby. It's the Charity Stripe. Hit your free throws because they're free. So 353 coming hot at you guys and so 352. And I'm joined on this one by Alex Tossman, Rock Disopolis, Nikki Snacks, Kreider, and yes, podcasting legend Roger Bennett. Before we get into the show, we got to remind you guys that we are brought to you by betonline.ag. Go to betonline.ag today. Bet, win money, that easy, get paid, go do it. Enough dilly-dallying. We're going to get into the interview. It was an awesome one. Talked about his book, Reborn in the USA, and a whole lot more. So enjoy Roger Bennett with the Charity Stripe Boys. All right, well, you heard in our intro, you got the four most handsome guys on the Zoom call. We got Roger Bennett, one of the legends in podcasting, joining us today. Rog, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm with you, gentlemen. I could not be happier. America. You, you really love America. For those who don't know, we did say it at the top. He wrote a great autobiography about his childhood called Reborn in the USA. It's a play on, obviously, the Bruce Springsteen song, Born in the USA. I assume uh, Bruce is one of my favorite uh, rock legends of all time, so I love that. I didn't get my Bruce Springsteen reference until the very end, but I'm glad it was The Rising because that song is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and Raj, just to start off with the book, man, what is, there's so many great moments. What's one moment in the book that if you hadn't experienced, you would never have been able to write this book? Uh, probably the pandemic, because, uh, <laughs> you know, sports stopped. Um, America fell into chaos. Um, nature abhors a vacuum. I cannot stand just sitting around. And mm. so in a time of darkness in the present, I kind of retrace the steps of my deep, deep love. It's the central idea around which I've organized my life, the idea of America. And um, and so I did have the time, thanks to the darkness of the reality, to write the bloody thing in the first place. And I did, I, it was like America was in a time of challenge. Um, and I wanted to write a love letter to, to everything that I felt, everything America had given me, not in my reality. I became an American in 2018, which is still the greatest day of my life. But way before that, when I was a kid growing up in Liverpool in the 1980s, if you've seen the movie Billy Elliot, you kind of get a sense of the It's the greatest city in the world, Liverpool. But my God, it was pretty dark, high level of unemployment, uh, heroin epidemic, not a lot of hope. And I kind of sustained myself. My, my ballet dancing, if you will, which was Billy Elliot's saving grace, I was not, not of that. Uh, I was just not blessed with those superhuman skills. America, America, the music, the movies, the books, the television shows, they filled my life with a sense of color and hope. And that's really what the book is, retracing all that, run DMC, the Chicago Bears Super Bowl winning team, Beastie the Beastie Boys. Boys. Yeah. yeah, and my one true queen, Tracy Chapman. 
uh, as well as a dabble in Miami Vice and, and all that gorgeous stuff. But I wanted to tell how powerful the idea of America can be for someone like me who always told himself he was an American trapped in an English boy's body. Do you think that you would have eventually gone to America still and lived there had you not gone to Chicago that one summer? You know, I don't feel you can be hypothetical about history. You know, if the plot against Hitler had worked, would uh, would the world uh, would the war have ended quicker? We'll never we never know. So there's no point in agonizing. Um, but the thing that's been fascinating for me um, is that um, in the release of the book, which is a very singular story, you know, lots of kids have childhood dreams. I actually acted on my. You know, I grew up with the Manhattan skyline painted on my bedroom wall, a particularly pathetic picture of the Manhattan skyline. It, it looked more like Warsaw. Right? I, will, I will say, though, that in the book, the photo you use, it's, it looks kind of solid. I was like, all right, that guy did a pretty bang up job. I was like, <laughs> not- it was like, it, it was like I've been to Warsaw and I realized now I think he actually painted Warsaw and told me it was Manhattan. It's a bit somber and it's a bit they were they were a bit they weren't the greatest skyscraper representations ever. But I, I now live in Manhattan. And, you know, so I've actually acted on my dream. But one of the things that's fascinating about the book, when you bring a book out into the world and the response to it has been has been very humbling. Um, but so many Americans, um, like Mina Kimes was the first. I, I reached out to her, the NFL analyst on ESPN. I reached out to her to blurb the book. Um, she read it and got back to me. She goes, oh, my God, you grew up dreaming of moving to America. I was like, yeah, that's what the book's about. And she's like, I, you know, I love the Smiths and the Cure. Like I dreamt of living in Manchester when I was a kid. I was like, oh my God, Mina, you dodged a bullet. But the reality is, it's, I think it's a very, or I've learned, it's a very universal um, mechanism when, I mean, everyone's adolescences or, or very few people's adolescence. I'm sure your three were smooth and just a rise to wonder. But most people's adolescence contains <laughs> challenges, contains obstacles. And I think it's a very common, or I've learned it's a very common human mechanism to dream that you were somewhere other than where you are, a place where where you are funnier and cooler and everyone laughs at your jokes and just life is amazing. I think that mechanism is is beautiful. Um, I think it's incredibly common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always like, because the grass is always greener on the other side in some sense. You know, you kind of, you kind of have that a little bit in the books. I look, I went to Italy and I studied there. I was like, oh my God, I would love to live in Italy. We had one of our buddies who grew up his whole life in Texas. We're all University of Texas guys. And he, yeah, right. And he, uh, and he went to go live in London. So there is that, always that sense of like the grass is always greener on the other yeah, side. Yeah, but it was for me. That's the reality is, you know, I, um, young listeners will not understand this, but in the olden days before the internet, you would like communicate with other people by getting paper and writing on it. It was called a letter. And you'd send these letters to pen pals. Yeah. And I had a pen pal in Chicago. And we wrote, it happened to be during the Bears Super Bowl year, um, uh, Super Bowl 20. And, like, you know, he'd fill me in on, oh, it was a close run thing. But then we obliterated them in the fourth quarter and all that crap. Send me clippings, send me posters of the William Refrigerator Perry. And then at the end of the year, he's like, why don't you come over, spend the summer with me? I was like, oh, my God, me, who like, I think had been on one plane, had like flown once, um, was like, oh, my, it was as if he invited me to Mars. But I actually went there for that summer to Chicago. That's what the book's about, to the northern suburbs where John Hughes had shot his movies, to Highland Park, to Glencoe. If you 
if you've seen Ferris Bueller's Bueller, Day Off, yeah. it was like that Ferris Bueller, when it came out, it came out a month after I got back from Chicago. And I saw that movie as a documentary of my time there. You know, I just <laughs> feasted on America. I, you know, drank, I ate, I, you know, the with uh, the bleachers at Wrigley Field, the Art Institute of Chicago, just uh, um, Abe Fruman. I did it, did it all. And it lived up. That's the, the point I, I'd make. It lived up. The grass is always greener. But for me, when I got here and lived that summer, it really was as magical um, as Miami Vice, the love boat, Fantasy Island and Heart to Heart. I promised it would be. It is. I mean, it's tough for us because we did grow up here. And so we always hear that we grew up with the complaining. We grew up with the this isn't right and that's wrong. Like the people grow up in their home countries. And so sometimes it's, us for, it's tough for us to take a step back and be like, wow, it's, it's a beautiful place. But I grew up in New York. So whenever I go back to Manhattan, where you are at now, I'm like, this city is absolutely phenomenal. Nick and I. Where about? Where about? I grew up on Long Island. Oh, okay. Which town? Merrick. You Respect. got it. Yeah, no merit. <laughs> yeah. you're, one of, you're one of the first people to get excited about someone from Long Island. Oh, Dude. mate, I love it all. I love it. I read, <laughs> in, the, I read in the book. I do. I love and I've missed during COVID, you know, um, what part of the job that I love the most is traveling America. You know, I love Nashville. I love Charlottesville. I love all the Vils. I love like inhaling a Juicy Lucy in, uh, in Minneapolis. I love uh, you know, getting off the plane and getting some hot extra 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 hot wings in in Prince's when I arrive in. I love all of it, and I think you're right. Like I take none of it for granted. There's not a day that I wake up um, and thank God that I live here and understand how grateful I am. And part of that is what you said that I I did not grow up here. You know, I was animated by the idea of America. I made that ideal real. You know, the reality and the idea are two very different things. Every nation has strengths and weaknesses, has challenges. But I will say um, that I, 2018, June 18th, became American in a courtroom um, downtown Manhattan with 162 individuals. And I write about this in the book um, from 42 different countries. And when you've been in that company, when you've been in that company, you share stories after you, you swear the oath of allegiance and you talk to your fellow new americans and you hear you know the civil civil wars they survived famines they survived you know, the deserts that they've walked through all of us animated by that idea of america which gave us courage strength joy hope at different times when you've experienced that then i think possibly you do take nothing for granted you do have a deep appreciation and that's what I wanted to to write uh, into this book. And I mean, the reception has been very humbling, very validating. But I think Americans love to hear what new Americans love about America. And, and it's um, it's it's time. Well, it's also relatable. I mean, like we've all sure. there's a lot of the experiences you had as a kid that like we had, like we were all there in presence of DJ Frankie. I've even been DJ Frankie at a bar mitzvah or two, my friend. Yeah. In Los Angeles. Yeah. You'd be surprised uh, about this. You think it's like this. It's been a wild road. You, you're, talking, you're talking about Frankie Muzzletoff. Say his full name. His name was Frankie, Frankie Muzzletoff. The, the, num- yeah. the, the, the number two bar mitzvah DJ in uh, <laughs> metropolitan Liverpool. God, love, I love that. Frankie Muzzletoff's getting a shout out on your podcast. I gotcha. I mean, that I was, I'm a, I used to be a mitzvah and like a DJ. Like an MC yeah. in Los Angeles for years. And so I got, I, res- I resonated with that on both sides of the coin, but it's, 
you start off not with you becoming a citizen with another man becoming a citizen. And I thought that was super, obviously I love the full circle of the book with ending on you, but I thought that was such an emotional moment because it was really one of the only few points in the book that I had a tough time relating to. And so that's why I think it revoked that emotion out of me. Yeah. I mean, my, my great grandfather left, um, the Ukraine, like thousands of people left, you know, Russia, Soviet Union, whatever, uh, in the early 20th century, um, and was headed to America to like thousands, like millions of people. And the, uh, the joke of the family is that he saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline when it, the boat docked to refuel and was like, we're here, we're in New York, we're getting off. And, um, and so we got stranded almost. We, we wanted to go to Chicago. It was meant to be where our, you know, he was a butcher. He wanted to be in the hog capital of the world. So whenever things were dark and twisted, my grandfather, his son, who was also a butcher, would take this cheap tchotchke. I now have it on my desk. Look at it. He'd take it. It's like this plastic thing. Oh, and he'd t- take it off the fireplace and he'd like solemnly look at it and he'd be like, oh my God, we should have lived there. We should have lived there. And that's it. That's why when you don't grow up here and you have that family story and you live in a place which is um, which is a little bit dark, the power of America around the world. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is that there was a study that came out uh, just ahead of lockdown that I think something like 46 percent of Western Europe now see America as positive. Over half think America is a bit crap. And that like that did actually upset the hell out of me um, in that moment. And what I wanted to refract back how powerful, how joyful, how deeply meaningful the idea of America can be um, to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because I imagine in 2018, when, when you finalized everything, that you could probably at this point give a better recounting of our history than the majority of Americans. And that's something yeah. that oftentimes like they'll pair up someone who's recently become a citizen versus people who have grown up in the United States and give them a little quiz. Right. And it's like, it's really interesting because I think, I think for you, you, you had already done it. You just needed that last, that last piece of paper that said, yes, yes, you yeah. really are. Yeah. They don't, they don't and on the citizenship test though, the questions that I can answer, like what, color was don johnson's t-shirt that he wore underneath his linen jacket sleeves <laughs> rolled up pleated pants no socks and espadrilles what color they don't ask what color was it always and the answer's teal or periwinkle occasionally melba if he was going for a big shootout so the stuff <laughs> that i know who was the sausage king of chicago the stuff i know they bizarrely don't they should ask that on the citizenship exam it would have been so much less pop stressful. culture test yeah yeah who was jay giles in the jay giles band they should ask you that kind of crap but they ask you you know who, who which president was also the postmaster general um so it was a bit it was um i will say that was a waking nightmare and uh, you do learn a lot about this great country and you probably know more than many people who are there but my lord um earning it Wanting it, earning it, and becoming an American is, um, I mean, I joke in the book that, um, you know, we have a photograph of one of my great, 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 great grandfathers. It was on my grandfather's wall in Liverpool. I always point to it and be like, who's that? And he'd be like, we don't remember his name. I'd be like, why have you got his photograph up? And he'd be like, he's the one. When the Cossacks came to kill our family, he killed the Cossacks. He's the you be like he's the Cossack killer. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, like, I, feel, I feel like great, great, great. I feel like he's the Cossack killer, and I do believe that in six generations, my 
headshot will be up on my descendants' walls above their dinner table, and they'll be like, "Who's that? Who's that bald bloke?" And they'll be like, "We don't remember his name, but he's the one. He's the one who brought us to America." And um, ultimately, I do think it's probably my greatest contribution to to my to, uh, to my so, family's life. So, what's the the nickname there? It's not the, the coyote. Killer. Is it the America Bringer? That just doesn't have the same ring. The bringer, uh, the breaker of chains. I like that. I'll take whatever I've got to Break say. Of James. The Cossack killer, I do need to say, does look like he's got blood on his hands. I mean, this man. Yeah. The, 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 it's a fitting name. It's a fitting the World name. Wrestling Federation was not invented, but this guy, he had no neck. It was just all massive cranium Shame. sinking into. Yes, just in. I mean, he was. The reality is, they could never look at me and be like, that guy killed Cossacks. It's just not feasible. Yeah. That, that guy ran away from Cossacks. That guy crapped his pants when the Cossacks. I don't know what it was, but they could, I'll, I'll take the breaker of change. Maybe he negotiated with the Cossacks because he's such a good talker. <laughs> Cossack <laughs> negotiator. Yeah, exactly. Well, if he's, I mean, I think the one of the morals right here is that like fleeing, not necessarily fleeing, we'll, we'll say fleeing or going away is maybe the bravest thing you could possibly do. Flight is better well, than fight. Going to new I, territory. I love you. I love you as much as I love that Sonics flag behind you. That's such a lovely piece of thinking. Yeah, when I was like, Cossacks, look over there. Just like, I don't know why you're you're talking about your great grandfather. And I just had this full like view as like a kid, like, you know, the movie Holes, just like how they used to curse the great grandfather for like, you know, like not caring. Stanley yeah, Stanley on. It's not caring about the mountain. They curse the great grandfather for not like getting getting off at the wrong stop. Yeah, and the Jay Giles uh, trivia question is fantastic. But you bring up your family. You know, how old your oldest? You have four kids, right? Samson, 17. 17. Has he read the book? Yeah. And he's not a big book reader. That, by the way, that's another joy is when people tweet you and are like, I never read books, but mm. I read yours, loved yours. Like people who do not read books, reading my book is uh, like, there's a lot of thrills of releasing a book out to the world, just seeing it, being read, being engaged with people buying books at indie bookstores to help the indie bookstore is, gen- is genuinely a thrill. But I will say when people say to you, I never read books, but I loved your yeah. book that and Samson, my God, uh, I really? think he probably, he read catcher in the rye because he had to, and he's read my book and that's it. But what was your question? Well, the those do- are the, the Dosekis of books. You know, I don't always, <laughs> I always read books but when I do. It's reborn USA by Roger Bennett. <laughs> oh, America. I definitely think that like of anything, not just book reading, I'm sure, but like when someone gives you the compliment that's, they don't often partake in that specific medium, but, but for you, they did and they enjoyed it. Like I'm not a big basketball fan, but like I watched LeBron James and he, he, I like watching, you know, like that's, that is almost the most extreme compliment because it's like, I'm not necessarily interested in it, but the version that you put forth in front of me, I am interested in. So I do think I do think of my book as the LeBron of <laughs> 1980s Liverpool uh, yeah. being beaten up at By school. Well, that's what I was getting. It is the goat of that for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, my question was, is what do you, what do you want your kids to take away from this? Oh, that's you- a be- that's a really lovely. So I have a lot of kids. Yeah, um, four of them. I have a gaggle of little ass kickers. Um, 
And once you've had like two, you may as well keep going. It's like it's such a diminishing yes, margin. Says that says the husband. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I mean, I'm like, I, I, uh, I they're all they all go pickpocketing in Times Square. They're fantastic, real crew. Um, that's the way to run uh, to run a business. But the um, the the reality is, I said to them, "This is my story. This is my American story." And I hope you. And I did write a lot of it for them. Like I wanted them to know. Um, I wanted them to know really, really where they come from, and to understand exactly what this place means to me in all of its wonder, in all of its um, challenges. The, the epigraph of the book is. Um, is from the poet Langston Hughes, the great American poet, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. And I believe deeply in them, like understanding the power of the idea of America and also the reality of America and trying to commit their lives to closing the gap between, between both of those things. But ultimately, and I say this at the end of the book, I, I, I hope they write their own stories, uh, their own American stories, uh, better than mine uh, like I, I really said that to all of them ultimately live your life be a singular human being um and make your own decisions um in the same way as i did and your listeners should just know that if they do have kids just be careful what you allow them to paint on their bedroom wall because they'll probably end up moving that yeah. yeah i mean it's it's it is so important i mean it's something unfortunately a lot of us have been you know imparted on but some people haven't like kind of go and do your own thing. I mean, it ju- it's totally changed from like when like our parents were kids to like now, or it's like more accepting. Like we do stuff like this for work. Right. And back yeah. in the day, it's like, Hey, like even my grandmother, I remember I was getting on the plane to college to go to acting school. My grandmother's like, you know, we can still squeeze you in at med school. And I was like, I'm about to move. <laughs> like, what? I was like, Those how, things how, how long of each other? Yeah, right how there. Long <laughs> Island Jewish can you get? Like from like, at what point can you like, it's like, she, we could still get you into med school. I'm like, I'm literally about to board a plane to Texas. It's like, he's going to play a doctor on TV instead. That's uh, that was my famous quote when I worked in a science lab. I was like, I'm gonna like, you want to be a doctor? I'm like, I think I'll just play one on TV. And I walked out. I was done for the summer internship. Um, but it, you do. It's important for like people to just kind of you know find themselves and do your own thing. And like, how did you find yourselves? How did you find yourself back in European football? Because you loved America so much and you loved American sports. How do you find yourself most? I mean, obviously you do a, a wide variety, but how do you mainly find yourself doing men and blazers and you know covering European football? Um, I moved here right before the World Cup was here in 1994. And uh, the World Cup here was meant to put football over the top. You know, our joke on our show, Men in Blazers, is that we cover soccer, which has been America's sport of the future since 1972. Like it's a perpetual false dawn. And I did love being here. I fell in love with American ball sports as soon as I moved here. About two days after I moved to Chicago, Michael Jordan retired for the first time. And I felt like so guilty so bloody personally responsible like it was all my fault um but i learned i love the white socks you know love 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 uh going down to comiskey fell in love with uh, you know the balls uh, of of uh, luke longley era luke uh, chicago bulls just that perennial winner luke longley and um and then the one thing i missed was football i grew up understanding the world through music and football. Liverpool is a massive football city. And it's even in the worst of times when unemployment soared, like our team still conquered Europe. And it's how I understood the world, 
human motivation, uh, you know, the geography of the world. Italians did everything. And it was terrible to begin with. You know, the, the, my team, Everton, were in the semi-final of a massive game. And it was not on anywhere. I couldn't find it on any network. It was just not on. And I ended up having to call my dad and he held the phone up against the, the radio so that I could follow along the game commentary. And um, the rise of football here in America has been one of the joys of my lifetime. Just World Cup to World Cup, the audience, you know, becoming more and more vibrant, bigger, uh, just now to a position where, uh, to me, the American sports fan who adores the game of, of soccer, football, um, that they know as much thanks to the internet as the people that live within a stone so of the stadium. And um, and so it's since 2014, really, it's been broadcast. There's more football now broadcast here in America than there is in, in England. And it's crazy. With this wave of young players, Christian Pulisic playing at Chelsea, Gio Reyna at Dortmund, Weston McKinney at Juventus, you know, there's a, we used to go mad when one of our players would play against those teams. Now we have a wave of bold, young, optimistic, joyous uh, rock stars. And I'd, I'd say America is on the precipice of becoming a normal footballing nation, which is all I've ever wanted. And we're it's like, spectacular. We're actually right there. And I'm curious to see your thoughts on this possibly. I mean, first of all, like the phone to the, like the, the TV is a story of your life. They were doing it for the Bears games and your dad, when you moved to the States and your dad had to do it for Everton, which is hilarious. Is it possible? I mean, like, you know, there's so much good and bad with social media. It's so tough to just like kind of black and white the whole thing. But when American players see how popular Europe, European players are and foreign players are and how much money is in that, do you think that's helped at all? Yeah, massively. I mean, um, there's a number of dynamics that have changed the thing. Uh, it really is the internet um, allowing you to follow this sport in the same way as like, baseball's golden era was radio's golden era the nfl's golden era was television oh it's a sport we can shoot from 57 angles and uh it's the perfect put commercial put commercials in every you know five four minutes amazing it's made for television football soccer is made for the internet in terms of the the way you follow it for sure so i'd say it's most ea sports fifa is the game that the silent hand that's grown the knowledge base of a generation of young americans who grew up at texas you know playing the game getting over heartbreaks by going on a you know a fifa binge and you learn the players you learn how it's different to play as messy than it is as ronaldo the teams the leagues the and you, that taught people the background that they never had before. And then just the amount that's now visible. And then above all, like Americans love a chance to daytime drink or have permission to drink it. Uh, <laughs> and I do, you know, if you're in a bar my at arm, yeah. 7.30 in the morning and you are having a, uh, a beer at a, uh, uh, um, a backstop, you are frowned upon by society. But if you're in that same bar, having a scotch and a beer and Everton's happened to be playing Chelsea on the television. You're a Premier League football fan and it's amazing. And I think the fact that it doesn't conflict with anything and it gives you that permission to go and have an amazing emotional connection to friends, family, relatives in an hour. If it was going up against American sports, it would never have taken root. But the fact that it's got that bizarre early morning window is... Yeah, yeah, if, you're, like, if you are a fan, you just commit always. Another aspect, too, is the fact that, you know, a lot of Americans haven't really made their way to Europe in, in these these leagues, like the Premier League or La Liga or anything like that. And to be the first one, like Pulisic, right, he had the entire country captivated by by Chelsea. You know, like we're all rooting for Chelsea because of 
Christian Pulisic, you know, being kind of the first one boots on the ground gives them that experience. You know, well, Ameri- they- Americans have been over there since the nineties, but they, they, they were playing, you know, it was a rare moment. They ground their way in um, and they played. So, you know, a number of them had long, wonderful careers, but it was below the radar of the great American right. sports fan. And what's changed is, these kids are no longer just grinding their way. They are big money is being paid for them. The, the, the thing that's changed to tell you more than you want to know is the perception of the American soccer player in the nineties and early two thousands were good kid. You won't have trouble from them. They're not that good. They'll do like a grinder. They're versatile, like grinders, they're pleasers. They won't make trouble. They're never going to be great. You know, Clint Dempsey was a sniper who could score goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the ones that went over were just, a, he's a good kid. Um, now, you know, Christian, and you talk to these young players, they all see Christian as the pathfinder. They don't look at the older guys. They're, they're like, this guy proved you could make money over there. You, you could be make noise. You could be a star on a big team. And he is the first to regularly play for a yeah, massive team, massive team, uh, win things with them. Um, it's been a, it's been a complicated road. He's, he's done it with tenacity. Many are now following, and what's changed is that perception, uh, both the perception of coaches, of team owners, many of whom are American. Like the thing that came first was American sports entrepreneurs bought the bloody teams. But you're really a question. Like the, I think the NBA, so we we have so many NBA and NFL stars that now watch football week in week out, have fallen in love with it, just like many young Americans. And LeBron and, owns part of a team. I'm not sure LeBron knows he owns part of the team, but he owns part of Liverpool Football Club. And it's assessed, he owns it with the Red Sox guys. You know, on our show, Aaron Rodgers uh, comes on and talks about football as if I'm speaking to a Liverpool, you know, happens to be a Manchester City fan. But he talks about the team like a Manchester City season ticket holder. JJ Watt, DeAndre Hopkins, uh, you know, in the NBA, Alex Caruso, Josh Hart, Josh Richardson, Larry Nance, they're all deeply, deeply obsessed with the with the sport. And part of it is that they've seen the money, they've seen the energy, they've seen the, the global platform. You win the NFL, you're massive in America. You win the Champions League, you're massive um, all around the world. And I think those dynamics have really opened up many people's minds to the game. It's, it's interesting that, yeah, because I feel like your guy, the Everton goalkeeper, Tim Howard, was kind of, he was one of those original guys that, that bridged the gap, right? But a goaltender is all about, consistency and so like that's not necessarily the flashiest the sexiest position on the pitch and so it it never really was like uh, how the perception of american players has changed and what they can provide for a team for a fan base more importantly and how many eyeballs they can bring in not just the people that really know soccer I mean, we had a, we had an incredible lineage of ball goalkeepers. It's almost a yeah. biblical lineage, lineage <laughs> of like Casey Keller begetting Brad Friedel, begetting right. Tim Howard, begetting the 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 goat Brad Guzan. It was just like we yeah. only we only produced a very niche line of goalkeepers who were follically challenged. But the goalkeeper's position is hand-eye coordination. So like you get yeah. these deeply athletic goalkeepers. Um, and uh, they're like, yeah, we can. And funny enough, the goalkeeper position has changed. It's actually become about the feet. Like um, the best goalkeepers in the world are now expected to ping sixty-yard passes through balls. Just you know, do incredible, uh, almost be playmakers when they have the ball at their feet. And the lineage of great American goalkeepers, uh, you know, there's a couple. Uh, the Manchester City backup goalkeeper is 
is a great, uh, wonderful American. Uh, but you know the the goalkeeping pipeline has has changed now. It's not just all about athletics. At the very time when these kids are now willing to move, the thing that's changed is these kids are now willing to move when they're fifteen. You know to get over to the to Germany Bundesliga, play in the academies, and almost finish their skills. If you, if you don't go over when you're fifteen, if you get, I mean, Clint Dempsey went to bloody college. He he emerged when he was twenty one. The great footballers of today. Oh, 17, 18, 19, you know, we're already talking about Mbappe. You know, we used to, in America, shove them into college. And that model is just discordant with the rest of the world. And now it's finally being undone. You're playing from behind. And it's like, why you have guys like, you know. It's similar to to baseball too. Like, you know, with the Dominican guys and the Cuban guys that come over who get signed at 16 years old, you know. That's all they do. They just go, they wake up and play baseball. Like That's it, young listeners. Young listeners, listen to this. Draw your own conclusions. College is a terrible idea. Just fling <laughs> yourself into the world. Yes, age fifteen, and just take on all comers. That's well, all. Well, so now, now, if you're a college athlete, you can make money doing that it. So maybe true. that changes things. But how different it would have been if Freddie Adu had come 10, 15 years later, where <sighs> you know, because at the time, like That's he just didn't have man. the resources, the competition around him at that young age and that skill level to to succeed it just it was an impossible it was an impossible thing we did such a terrible thing to that kid i mean they all of them there's a long line of next big things and we and i what i'd say in a nice way is just there's a desperate desire there's a desperate dream um to be and very badly for america to be a remarkable world-class football team and it definitely can be we are not far away but it you've got to be patient the other teams had like a hundred year head start and um i made a show american fiasco about the american world cup it's a podcast american world cup campaign in 1998 and it captured the american mentality for me is that the u.s qualified for the world cup for the first time in 50 years in 1990 and then they hosted it here and i can say they didn't crap their pants when they hosted it here but we talk about their performance as if it was unbelievable. They, they qualified out of their group. They got into the knockout round, which is good. It's good. But it's not like it's not the noise that was heard around the world. But their mentality. In, and then in 1998, they went thinking that I love America. They thought they were going to win the World Cup. And their reason was 1990. We showed the world we belonged. 1994. We showed the world we could compete. Therefore, 1998. We should, we'll show the world we'll win it. And of course, they came dead last. They didn't win us game. They humiliated themselves against arch nemesis Iran, who beat them in humiliating fashion. It just takes time, man. I want America to be so... They are, I mean, the American women... The women, I was about to say. World amazing. I, I want the men to be half as good as the women. And I'll be like, oh my God, this is the promised land. We just got to be patient. And I will say, we the World Cup's coming here 2026. And we should be decent. We should be really, really decent. Well, anything could really happen. I mean, if you look at what happened in the Euros, like Belgium, France, they didn't go to the finals. They're the favorites over there. Obviously, England, people are hoping that England, sorry. I, I mean, I, you're, I know your allegiance lies from listening to your show. You, your allegiance lies more so in America. Um, but England obviously loses. Um, and it, it's kind of shown that anything could really happen. You know, it's not as much of a given um, as some other sports in America are. Like, I know as long as the sky is blue, the Sacramento Kings are probably not going to win in my lifetime, realistically. 
I'm almost fair. I'm almost very certain. Um, I'm, Chris I've, Webber's turning over in his grave as you say that. Well, I'm sorry. Like you can't rewrite, as you said at the top, you can't rewrite history. So like, it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what's, that's what's happened. So, I mean, but I look at our team, it's young, which is great. It's great for young people to look up to. Can you yeah. look up to these stars? Can you like, which is good at, which is what America's kind of built on. You know, you see people and you go, okay, I can be that guy someday. And it's built on that dream of you can kind of grow up. And and I still think, I still believe it's going to happen for me. Like when I think of that 2026 World Cup, now I'm American. I think we can play Pulisic on the left. We can have Gio Reyna tucked in just behind me. And I think, you know, just coming, just making my moves, just like, you know, cutting in um, unstoppable, an unstoppable force from six inches out, Roger Bennett, uh, with the goals. It is a dream. And I think that we've had that dream for a long time and we have anointed many, many, many false prophets. Um, like Freddie Adu to me is a cautionary tale, but it's also he's a reflection of just how badly we want to be number one. And we want to be number one because that's the American way. And it's such a bizarre thing for Americans to be, you know, we, the, the, you win the Super Bowl, you're the world champion. You win the World Series, you're the world champion. And you are, you are the best. There's no team that is better than whoever. Like, it's hard for us to compute that our domestic league is light years behind most of the European leagues and our men's team is, is, is quite mediocre, quite middle of the pack. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it takes time to change that. And it's hard for Americans to get their, their head around that. And my God, I, I will say, the, the men's team um, becoming deeply competitive, just becoming deeply entertaining to watch and um, qualifying for World Cup again and giving us hope, making the case for hope. It's baby steps, but my God, it, the, there is the potential there to be magnificent. Yeah. You can turn around real quick. Italy went from not qualifying to winning the Euros. You can move Speaking real quick. of entertaining to watch, you host another podcast on uh, one of the, the more entertaining shows to watch on HBO, Succession. How did you find yourself in that role? Um, wow, that was a change-up. Um, I, I love television. Um, you know, I'm making a show now for HBO that I can't um, talk about. Um, and we just, we've just framed our, our a lot of our... Uh, content is based around interviews that we do uh, that have become quite popular. Um, and for a show that's about football, we get some hilariously wonderful guests uh, coming on. And I think word of mouth comes out from the people that we had. I always find, you know, there's a million interviewers who can make people um, talk about what happened last week. You know, the NHL interviews that we do. Yeah, um, yeah I'm fine. I love the NHL. I love my capitals. I love, uh, you know, when I first watched that sport, it was like watching um, Premier League football turn sped up to 11. It was like, oh my God, that is bonkers. And I adore it. Um, but most of their players are asked the same questions. You know, what went wrong? What can you do better? How can you? And they're sick. Of, they're honestly sick of talking about the blue line or hitting harder or speeding up the puck on the power play. You know, they want to talk about their dreams, their hopes, their fears, their, you know, their darkness, the tenacity, the lessons about life that they they've they've uh, or in Ovi's case, you know, uh, hangover cures, whatever. Um, and so I think ultimately the, the content that we make transcends sport, um, or transcends whatever sport we're talking about. If we get, um, you know, a great, um, 
the, the young kid just came on, Kale McCaw from the Colorado um, Avalanche. And just yeah. for him to tell his life lesson is, is to learn about uh, so much more than hockey. And the reality is success. So everything we do really is about life. And so the, to me, the, the, the move to talk about succession is really seamless. I don't really think about it as radically different. So yeah. Talking about succession is talking about hope, aspiration, dream, family, greed. I mean, you could be talking about Manchester United with exactly the same, uh, the, 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 the Glazer family that, and the way they run Tampa yeah, Bay and, yeah. uh, in the same way. So it was, honestly, I don't think about it as very different. And God bless, what an incredible cast of human it, beings it, to talk yeah. to. Show. Yeah, the Kieran Culkin interview you ran. I mean, Kieran, I saw, this, I saw him in This Is Our Youth on Broadway and he was, dude, honestly it's one of my favorite plays i love kenneth lonergan and he threw down i think i think if you listen to the succession series the thing you leave with um wholeheartedly is just an incredible sense of how well they cast it like the life stories of these human beings leading them to the show is um and i think that that really comes through from that piece guys well yeah i i mean you talk about crossover of american and british culture i mean you've got matthew mcfadden in there so it's, I mean, it, clearly it's the, a similar experience if he's able to draw on that and, and perform in such a way that he does in, in the show. I, he's not the only British actor, right? Yeah, There's, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he's a, Siobhan, whoever plays Siobhan, she's also she, British as she, well, she, right? She's she Australian. Um, she's Australian, that's right. She, um, she uh, he's, he's, he's an amazing He's an amazing human being, and he's a good example of how the casting, I mean, he's just like so bored. He's a, that guy is just a massive star in England. I mean, PBS Masterpiece Theatre would not exist if Matthew McFadden had not been born. You can make that case. That guy is constantly just walking around in Elizabethan collars made in chase love. Like he's, Thomas he's, Hardy. My, he's my Mr. Darcy. Yeah. Yes. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you didn't say, like, you cannot make a Bronte thing or a Hardy thing. Get me, Matthew McFadden. That guy is so bored of like wearing starchy collars. And to give him the opportunity to play essentially a doofus, just, just an impotent doofus is like the joy of his lifetime and that's what that's succession is brilliant for so many different reasons Um, catching a zeitgeist story just ahead of the the reality that then ensued politically i mean they so many brilliant things but when you listen to the podcast which is with each of the the different stars of the show you just get an overawed sense of my god the way they cast the motivations of each of those human beings to turn them into those characters is it's just production brilliance. Yeah, they yep. crushed it. It's really perfectly cast. We, we got a couple of quick hitters before you okay. play the role. Um, this is the question that uh, that um, I was thinking about because your brother-in-law, Nick Kroll, Big Mouth, is there any opportunity for you to get a character on Big Mouth? Well, Big Mouth is a good show, so they wouldn't have me on it. Uh, to, <laughs> yeah, to, but I mean, like, all, these, all the characters on there are based off someone, like, in his life. Like, any chance that you get a character? Uh, I think I am actually the creepy John Oliver English counselor character is the reality. And like, as an English guy, I'm sure there's like, uh, we all used to come across to, to be counselors for one year wearing uh, jorts and just generally being completely oblivious to anything that would add value to American kids' life in the wilderness. Um, so, I mean, Nick's unbelievable and what he's done in terms of just with incredible um, but just an incredible crew, an incredible cast. That writer's room 
of of mining humor. I mean, the greatest humor is often from a dark place, and there's nothing darker than adolescence. And that show just captures it um, beautifully in every regard. I like a I like the idea of a college counselor. Once they grow up a little bit more, a college counselor who really has no idea what the college landscape in the United States looks like, being from England and just telling him like, "Oh yeah, Clemson's a great yeah, yeah oh, that's mate." The- yeah. Yeah. If it's good enough for William Refrigerated Perry, it's good enough for anybody. <laughs> Clemson, it is, kids. Yeah. I don't know why. I think this is the first one that popped in my head. No, love Death Valley. Clemson's a great, Clemson's a great school. It's a yeah, great go school. On. <laughs> uh, next one we got for you, real quick Chicago pizza or New York pizza? Uh, why do I have to choose? You have Genuinely. to. <laughs> no, no. Why is life should not be about false choices? I mean, the real, I'm going to Chicago on Friday. Um, to go and pitch, um, oh, it's terrifying off that mound. Um, at the White Sox, I'm gonna give throughout the La- first pitch, yeah. I oh, mean, I, t- I told Tony Larusa, like, if he's 97 and can manage, I can give him six good innings. They, 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 they think <laughs> I'm just doing the first pitch, but I'm not vacating that motherfucker. Can I say that? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna I'm, I'm just gonna pour the heat for at least six innings. I didn't get Tommy John for nothing, I'm gonna let rip. <laughs> And just throw my, you know what the rotate the rotation sucks anyway, so they could probably I know, use I know, it. But I'm, I am unhittable in the same way as Mariah Carey was unhittable when she <laughs> threw her first pitch. There's no one that was going to get a bat. Uh, Fifty cent, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's going to be so, um, so. Going to Chicago, and I will say, like, there's a the notion of going to Pequod's Pizza is is just deeply sustaining to me. Um, I adore it. I do believe when you look at a Pequod's Pizza when they bring it out about four and a half hours after you order it because it takes that long to cook through. I do believe the whole of life is contained between those two crusts, the upper and the lower. But I mean, New York pizza is, is amazing, but the, the, the proper answer is probably Naples, isn't it? So I'll yeah. go with, I'll, I'll go with, <laughs> Cut out. I, I, I'll go with, I'll go with uh, a big fan of Gomorrah. Uh, right. I will go with Naples pizza. Last two for you. Go. In your book, there's a lot of characters that you look up to from America. Mellencamp, Tracy Chapman, Don Johnson. Rank them for us in order of importance in your chart. That's actually easy. That Tracy Chapman, Tracy Chapman, Tracy Chapman again. Um, and then the other two would bang him in there somewhere. And then Tracy Chapman again. She is, she is. I mean, I write about at the end of um, just like, I was trying on lots of different images. Like uh, Don Johnson was, I mean, Mellencamp's first, not his first album, but his best album, Scarecrow. It's a, just a beautiful, beautiful document. Mellencamp of today is is a, I mean, look at one we all uh, different human being than he was then. But that album is just an incredible artifact of sound and history and music and human emotion. There's one song in particular, "Minutes to Memories," which is just absolutely gorgeous. I write about in the book. Don Johnson taught me to be singular in style. Like that guy was like. Oh my God, I'm going to go to a shootout that may end us, may, set, may end the world. Like we are going to shoot uh, out against the greatest narco threat to democracy. And everyone else in the unit, like 100 guys, would be strapping on the Kevlar and the helmets and the everything. And Johnson thought, like, no, why would I need Kevlar? Where, where I'm going, we need periwinkle t shirts tucked into my high waisted linen pants. And, you know, he, he no socked it, which is always a dangerous game. Um, and he went Finger to. Gross. He went to war like that. And I was always like, why is he going to war like that? And and the reality is he was telling 15-year-old me, be singular in style, find a style, and then stick with it no matter what. No matter what. 
stick with it. And I did. And I wore linen pants in Liverpool. And I can say they're great for Miami, but like um, when you get rain stains in linen pants, they're almost impossible to get out as a 14-year-old to learn that life lesson. And so he was great, but I knew, I learned I wasn't him. I learned that I wasn't like he had cheekbones that I would never have. And ultimately, lots of different changes. Ultimately, Tracy Chapman's album came out, her debut album. It's the climax of the book. Watching her, I already loved that play. And you can YouTube this, listeners, at Wembley. She played at the Nelson Mandela birthday concert. She was not meant to play. It was meant to be Stevie Wonder. 72,000 Englishmen wanted Stevie Wonder. They were drunk. They wanted to hear. I just called to say, I love you. And instead, his synth blew up. They couldn't put him on. They threw out this unknown star who played earlier in the day. She was terrified when she went on. Armed with just a guitar. She played fast car. Fast car in America. And when you watch that, she drew mythical strength. And the message of her album, to me, in Liverpool, was... Um, when you are facing incredible challenges, don't be afraid to make great changes and get out while you can, which is what I did, why I'm with you guys, yeah. why I wrote my book. And so Tracy Chapman every bloody time. I love it. Love Last question. When we ask this question to every single guest on our show, this could be from you as a fan, as, as an athlete back in your day, your favorite sports memory of all time. <sighs> my God, that's such a, dark it would probably be when i first went to watch everton football club um with my dad april 1st 1977 i was six years of age um it was bloody freezing i couldn't see anything um because it was all large men standing up in front of me and a man by me took it was freezing freezing cold took off his sheepskin jacket rolled it up lifted me up with one arm Mm. shoved it under my seat plonked me back down on it and he goes we're all one big family here at goodison park and i was like wicked and then at halftime my dad pulled out a flask and gave to six-year-old me. He goes, drink that. And it was scotch. And I just drank a load. It just felt warm all over. And um, I have never felt happier than sitting on that man's sheepskin coat throne, just have that warm scotch flowing through my veins, watching Everton Football Club win. It's a, it is the singular greatest sporting memory. And ultimately, it's what sports is great for, as you know, connecting you to other people, yeah. feeling joy, taking insignificant moments and just celebrating them with full-throated happiness. It's what life is all about at the end of the day. That's why we asked that question. Yeah. Good bunch of different answers, man. <laughs> Raj Bennett, Men in Blazers, and a million other podcasts. You don't need any closeout or introduction, but we do got to tell you guys to go read his book because it truthfully was an amazing read. Raj, thank you so much for joining us today. We loved having you on. Guys, to you, to health, to happiness, to your Thanks, friendship, man. to America. Courage. Great show. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Go check his podcast out, Men in Blazers. And he does a great podcast on Succession where he interviews the actors and the leads from the TV show. To the fans out there, drag both feet inbound, swing on a full count, rip that puck, hit the putt, hit your PKs because they free and your free throws. Why? Because they are free. We outcha. We love ya.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.